All right, good morning. morning. All right, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. We're studying through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 13. We're going to look at this entire chapter this morning. The topic, the Revelation introduces the two men associated with the notorious number 666. The title of our message, 666 is the manliest number that you'll ever do. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we've uh, spent some time in worship. Now we're before your word, Lord, and desiring to submit to it. You've been reminding me this morning, Lord, that when we gather together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit on earth. We are a unique temple this week, Lord. There's never been another temple just like this with just these living stones built together. And with that, Lord, we anticipate that you want to minister to us in a very personal way through the contacts we have with other believers this morning, things that we see, things that we don't see, but especially through your word as you feed us and teach us and nourish us. And hopefully, Lord, encourage us in our own walk with you. And so be our teacher, be our guide, be our comforter. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. 007 Uh, his villains employed henchmen to do their bidding. Goldfinger had odd job. His signature weapon was a razor-edged bowler hat, which he wore at all times and could throw with deadly accuracy. Two of James Bond's villains employed Jaws. He was a skilled killer, relying on brute strength and steel teeth to dispatch his victims. Satan will employ two henchmen to do his bidding in the future Great Tribulation. In verse 1 and verse 11, it says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. The dragon empowers the beastie boys to convince those who inhabit earth to worship him. It serves to remind us that Satan hates us and has a terrible plan for our lives. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, what are you being offered to worship Satan? And number two, how are you being oppressed? to worship Satan. So let's take a look in verses 1 through 10 on the offer. This is a real word. I'm going to try and get through it phonetically. Hexacousi oi hexacon hexaphobia. What do you think it is in light of our study? It's the abnormal fear of the number 666. It's a real thing. It's crazy. I tried to memorize it, but it's, it's, it's just impossible. The number of the beast isn't the most crucial thing in this chapter. It is something in the Bible that seems to pique our curiosity. And so I'm going to break with expository protocol and start in verse 18 so that we can get this on record and then you won't be wondering what I'm going to say when I get there. Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man His number is 666. The number six in the Bible is associated with mankind. Man was created on the sixth day. In Israel, men were to work six out of every seven days. A Hebrew could only be held in servitude for a maximum of six years. After six consecutive years of sowing their fields, Jews were required to allow them to lay fallow. In the Bible... Men establish six world empires that are prominent in relation to national Israel. They are in succession, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, 
Greece, and Rome. The Roman Empire is going to repeat two more times in the future. There's going to be a revived Roman Empire, and the revived Roman Empire will be taken over by Satan's agent 666. So you have Rome and revived Rome and revived Rome ruled by the beast. That would be six repeating two more times, or 666. 666 is the number of man attempting to establish a godless kingdom on the earth. It will be the number of a particular man, the beast, in a final desperate attempt to rule the world with Satan empowering him. 666 is as far as mankind can, do, can go. The true seventh kingdom will be established by Jesus at his second coming. And so that might not be as exciting as trying to figure out uh, whose name adds up to 666. It always seems like everybody you want to be the beast, their name can add up if you use cuneiform or Egyptian or if you do whatever you can. But uh, that's our take on it, is that it has to do with mankind in rebellion to God trying to set up a kingdom of man uh, when Jesus is going to be the king over the true kingdom. And so verse 1, then I stood on the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. A better translation is, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Satan was expelled from heaven in chapter 12 and cast down to earth, and now in a continuation of the same vision, we see him on the shore of the sea. It says that a beast rises up out of the sea, or does he? Because in Revelation 11:7 we were told that the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit, and then in chapter 17 we read, the beast that you saw will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now the bottomless pit is the abyss. The abyss is a place of confinement for evil beings. So which is it, the bottomless pit or the sea? Well, since the Bible is using them interchangeably here in this section, we conclude that the sea in these passages represents the abyss. And so um, it's, it's in order to make the vision more legible, you would say, uh, John refers to the abyss as, as the sea. Uh, and it's interesting, I don't have time to get into it, but there's a lot of information that says that the Jews especially considered the sea a place for monsters. Uh, you'll read about the Leviathan, for example, the sea monster of the Old Testament, and, uh, and a place for demons to be confined, and so is the abyss. Uh, and so the sea is interchangeable with that, at least in this section. So this individual is going to arise out of the abyss. In chapter 17, we're going to read, an angel said to me, I will tell you the mystery of the beast which has the seven heads and the ten horns. That chapter goes into great detail about that part of the vision, and so we're not going to do that this morning. If we're not raptured, we'll talk about heads and horns when we get to chapter 17. Verse 2, now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Daniel described the flow of history using these same animals, associating them with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And so one of the things this is telling us is that uh, the Bible, uh, we already know this, but it, it, you know, we don't need reminding, but it's exciting. The Bible tells one continuous story from Genesis through the Revelation. 
It's not a collection of stories. It's not a, a literary work in that sense. It's telling the story of God's redemption, of how God is going to redeem lost mankind and restore ruined creation. Uh, and so what we read about in Daniel concerning the last days and this succession of empires is the same thing that we read about in the Revelation. And so we're talking about men seeking to establish kingdoms uh, in defiance to the kingdom of God. And in verse 3, it says, I saw one of his heads. So does this guy have more than one head? That'd be a dead giveaway that he's the beast, but that's not happening. That would be weird even for the revelation. At first, the beast is identified with other national leaders in a coalition government. He is one head among them. Something happens to his head that elevates him to be the head over all the heads. Did you follow that? Yeah, it was pretty easy. So something happens to his head that elevates him to be the head over all the heads. And in verse 3, we're told, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. And so the beast is going to be killed, but then return to life. He's going to, something's going to happen to his head, and he's going to be dead. I'm starting to rhyme now, which I don't mean to. Uh, and, uh, and he's going to come back to life. Uh, those of you, I, I, you know, because everybody, the JFK, right? I remember when JFK was assassinated, my dad uh, told me he might come back to life in three days. And I thought, what kind of a crazy man is this, you know, and stuff. But he had heard it from the Bible because his head was, was mortally wounded. And uh, over the years, I've heard JFK used as an example, even though, I mean, this goes back to the 60s, it's still a great example of, uh, you know, imagine if John Kennedy had come back to life three days after he had been assassinated and the Zapruder film showed his, half of his head being blown off. I think that would have been fantastic in terms of a supernatural event. And so apparently something like this is going to happen in the future to this beast, his head, uh, and then he becomes the head over the other heads. Revelation 17, 8 makes it clear he dies when you read, the beast that you saw was, is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. That means he was alive, he died, was sent to the abyss, returned from the abyss, and in the end will be cast into perdition, which is another name for the lake of fire, which we commonly refer to as hell. Now, here's something to ponder. Let me set this up. I think you'll follow this. It's not hard to follow, but it draws from a few things. We know from the teaching of Jesus that when non-believers die, they go to Hades to await resurrection and judgment. In fact, before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when anyone died from the time of Adam and Eve up until that time, they went to Hades. There was a compartment in Hades that was a place of comfort and waiting, like a, a really cool waiting room, not the kind at your doctor's office or your dentist's office where you're going crazy with old magazines, uh, you know, but a really cool one. And on the other side, a place of torment where the unrighteous uh, went. And then we, we know that Jesus said that he, or in Ephesians, it said Jesus descended into that depth and he ascended, bringing all the righteous saints with him to heaven. So now the Bible says if you're a believer, when you're absent from your body in death, you are immediately present with the Lord. But if you're a non-believer, your soul still goes to Hades to await one final general resurrection of the unrighteous 
uh, and then to be cast alive into the lake of fire in an immortal body. Okay, so you've got all that. Here we see that the beast does not go to Hades like every other dead human being. He goes to the abyss, and then he returns from the abyss to the wonder of the world. A mortal human body cannot survive in the abyss. It suggests that when the beast returns, he will have an immortal body. This is kind of hinted at, too, at the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes in chapter 19 to establish his kingdom, one of the first things he does is he throws the beast and his false prophet, beast number two, into the lake of fire. They don't stand before the great white throne judgment uh, like every other non-believer. Somehow they are thrown into the lake of fire immediately, which also suggests they must have immortal bodies uh, in order to have that happen. So at least the beast one here gets his immortal body uh, after his uh, assassination, and we're not sure when beast two gets his, but it, it certainly adds to the mystique of the beast and why people will follow after him. He will have supernatural abilities and all the world marveled and followed him. So verse four, so they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. 42 months are 1260 days or uh, a time, time, and half a time. They are different ways of describing the last three and one half years of the Great Tribulation. The malevolent, blaspheming beast will be the champion for all those who refuse to repent and believe the testimony of the gospel. Remember, we've been showing you in every week how the time of the Tribulation is a great time of evangelism. God is seeking to reach men and women with the knowledge of the Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, it's a harsh time, obviously, but it's a last-ditch effort to save them. And now with this uh, beast on scene, those who refuse the gospel will have a false hope that the dragon who is credited with this miracle can contend with and defeat Jesus. It's like a Star Wars movie in their mind where there's the, the force and you're either going to go good or bad. And in their case, they say, hey, we're going to go bad. We want to throw in with this dragon and with his beasts, because they seem really powerful. And who is this Jesus character anyway? And so that's being set up. Then in verse six, he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Daniel and Jesus predict that the beast will defile the Holy of Holies in the tribulation temple. They label the incident the abomination of desolation. What happens is the beast demands worship which is in fact worship of his boss, Satan. And so midway through the tribulation, in fact, it's the event that separates the first and second halves of the tribulation. This beast goes into the uh, temple and he says, hey, guess what? Not only am I the world leader, I am God and I want you to worship me. And, uh, and the world does. And it, uh, it, it's terrible. Uh, and this is when the Jews flee into the wilderness and all this persecution takes place over the last three and a half years. It says it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Notice it says it was granted and given to him. It reminds us that God remains in charge. The outcome of the great tribulation is never in question. 
You never have to wonder if Luke is going to go over to the dark side or not. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, why does God allow this? Because he's bringing human history to this conclusion. He's dealing with sin one last time. He's giving men opportunity to be saved, and if they refuse salvation, uh, he's dealing with them harshly. But why is he doing it? Essentially, he's doing it because of sin, because of Adam and Eve's sin, and we, uh, as sinners in Adam and Eve, uh, God is marshalling his plan to save the world. But it's given to him, and it is granted to him. Martyrdom is never a defeat. It is always a testimony. In verse 8, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross is understood to have occurred from the foundation of the world. It isn't the names that were written there, although that's true too, but his death for, the, for mankind is from the foundation of the world. He is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. That means that everyone who has ever conceived, every human being, has the potential for salvation. Uh, there's lots of division in the church about this issue, uh, but I'll, you know, we're open about the fact that we believe that Jesus died for everyone's sins. God so loved the world, not just a certain group of people. There is nobody who cannot be saved. Uh, there are no group of people where from eternity past, God said, I'm passing over you. There's no hope for you. You'll never respond to the gospel by my choice for my glory. And so Jesus is the savior of all men. And also from the foundation of the world, that means everyone ever conceived has their name written in his book of life. What happens? Well, the have not been written can be worded, the name does not remain written. So we argue that everyone's name is written in the book, but the names of those who never believe in Jesus will not remain in the book. Their names are not found there when they are raised to face final judgment. All right, so... Uh, you know, your name is there. Uh, there's only one unpardonable sin. There's only one blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, it's not chewing tobacco. That might be high on some lists, but, you know, everybody has these sins that are, keep you out of heaven. It's not suicide. And I say that boldly, not to encourage anyone to commit suicide, because it's an awful thing. It's a terrible thing. It hurts the living. You're not helping anybody. If you're contemplating suicide, don't. Uh, if you know somebody who's mentioned suicide, take it seriously. Get some intervention for them. Uh, there's an absolute epidemic of suicide right now, even here in Kings County. They've been predicting it as a result of the lockdowns all around the world, and, certain, and it has spiked. And so, you know, but suicide isn't the unpardonable sin. I don't say that for anybody to clear the way, obviously. There is an unpardonable sin, and it is rejecting Jesus Christ and not coming to salvation. Ultimately, if you die in your sins without the Savior, there is no hope for you. That is the unpardonable sin. And so uh, those people, when they die and go to Hades, awaiting their future judgment, their name does not remain in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Does this sound familiar to you? Well, it should because seven times in chapters 2 and 3, to the seven churches of Asia, we read, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, interesting, there's no mention of the Spirit and the churches here, and that's because the church was resurrected and raptured before the Great Tribulation. Now, critics will say, oh, 
you're reading into it that it doesn't say that. It's an argument from silence. It's a powerful argument from silence. Seven times Jesus spoke to the church on earth and said, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And the next time you encounter that phrase, the churches and the Spirit aren't mentioned. It's at least leaning in the direction of the fact that the Spirit and the churches are not on earth as they are before the great tribulation. Verse 10, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Sometimes a condemned person will be asked, do you have any last words? Mine would be, I'd like to read war and peace out loud, but I don't know if you'd get away with it. I don't know. Is there a limit to last words? I mean, I mean, I mean come on, really. If, you know, I mean, if you memorized war and peace, you could really, you could put off your execution for quite a while. Or even the Lord of the Rings, right? The whole trilogy. And then once you're done, you could go back and read The Hobbit. And so, so I don't know if there's a, a, you know, some kind of limit. I suppose there should be. But they'll be asked that. And so the first part of this verse, it may be the last words of tribulation saints before their martyrdom. Kind of a warning to those who are putting them to death. They testify to that with their lives by faith with patience. Now, you might have noticed that I haven't at all used the title Antichrist uh, about the beast. The Revelation never uses the term Antichrist. And that is where a lot of people get tripped up because uh, people who don't believe in this literal translation and, and acceptance of Revelation, they'll ask you, they'll say, how many times do you think the name Antichrist appears in the Revelation? You might say, oh, a bunch, because he's a main character. It doesn't appear once, and now you're stumbled. It's like, oh, my pastor lied to me. I need to go talk to Pastor Gene right now. Where's the Lair's coffee shop? <laughs> and, and, uh, but the, the Antichrist, the beast, has 40 different names in Scripture at least. Let me give you a few of the ones I came across. The man of sin, the lawless one, the bloody and deceitful man, the wicked one, the man of the earth, the mighty man, the violent man, the Assyrian, the spoiler, the little horn, the prince that shall come, the willful king, the idle shepherd. And that's just a sampling, as I said, of, of the different descriptions of this character. When Jesus was on earth, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world if the Lord would worship him. Jesus did not dispute Satan's temporary rulership or his right to offer. We can expect the devil to make us offers what worldly kingdom has Satan offered you that would weaken or ruin your walk with Jesus? Is it the kingdom of happiness if you will break your marriage vows? Now, I, I, I use marriage a lot as an example because it is uh, something that most of us can genuinely relate to. It's the most important relationship on the earth after our relationship with God. And quite honestly, for the entire four decades I've been in the ministry doing a marriage discipleship, many, 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 many times people come in and they say, I'm just not happy here, but I am happy with this new person that I just met. God wants me to be happy. No, no, you know what? Satan wants you to be happy in this situation. He wants you to receive what he's offering you. All you have to do is disobey God. Has God said that you should keep your marriage vows? Has God said that marriage is forever if you're unhappy? 
And so it may not be marriage, it could be anything, but one of Satan's strategies is to offer you things that will hinder your walk with Jesus Christ. And I don't know what those things are for you. The devil knows a lot about you. Uh, you know, he's, he, we worry about identity theft. Well, he, he knows a lot about you. He studied you through his uh, devilish partners. And, and he can figure out what it is that, that you really would desire that is in disobedience. He knows whether, you know, that fig tree in the garden, you know, that, that's the one. And do and you see this fruit? This will make you wise. And so whatever it is, and again, this isn't a rebuke to anyone here. It's a reminder. We need to be ready when the devil makes us his offers. They're genuine offers of destruction. How are you being oppressed to worship Satan? Beast one won't work alone. He'll have the help of beast two. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. The second beast comes from earth, meaning he doesn't spend time in the abyss. At some point, as I mentioned, however, he too will need an immortal body before being cast into the lake of fire. We're not told when he receives it, so I, I don't, can't comment on that. Beast two is described as having two horns like a lamb. That's interesting because everywhere else the word lamb is used in the Revelation. It refers to Jesus. So we would say that beast two is a Jesus impersonator. You ever seen an impersonator, like an Elvis impersonator? This guy will come on the scene. And we know from other scriptures that there's going to be a lot of false Jesuses, a lot of fake messiahs, a lot of impersonators. But when this guy comes, he's going he's gonna to seem like the real thing. He's going to have it because he's going to be empowered by the devil and people are going to be led astray by him. It says he'll speak like a dragon. I don't know exactly what that means, but I was wondering why the world's best-selling dictation software is called Dragon. Dragon software? I don't know, it's kind of weird. I, I looked at it for it and I couldn't figure it out. Verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. In his presence means on his behalf. He has authority and makes things happen in this evil administration. One thing that he makes happen is to cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. We're told how he does that in verse 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Performs means he repeatedly does it. He does sign after sign, and they are designed to persuade mankind to worship the first beast. Commentators get all wound up here trying to prove that Satan and his minions are incapable of doing anything that is a real miracle. The Great Tribulation, especially the last half, will be a very unusual time. It'll be unlike any other time the world has ever or would ever know. And so it's likely that God will allow Satan to perform limited miracles. Now, if that bothers you, that's fine. You don't have to believe that. It could all be a big deception. But I don't have any problem with the Lord granting Satan permission to, do, uh, to, to, to raise this individual from the dead uh, and to give credence to his claims. Another of the signs he does is he makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. God's two witnesses, who we met in a previous study, can kill with fire. In the Old Testament, Moses performed various signs that were mimicked by the magicians of Egypt. 
This could be something similar as if they're saying, anything God can do, I can do better. And because what you, what you end up with here is an unholy trinity, commentators call it. You have the devil and the beast, and you have his false prophet, uh, who's a Jesus impersonator. And it's like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's a, uh, it's a mimicking and a blasphemy of the trinity. And, and men on earth, mankind on earth says, yeah, that's our God. We're going to follow that. We don't want to have anything to do with this Jesus. No matter how obvious God makes salvation alone through Jesus Christ alone, there's always those that love their sin more than they love God. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Deceives mean, uh, means to lead astray. Miracle signs and wonders can validate God's word or they can lead you astray. What's important is the word of God judging their source of the message associated with them. Whether it's gifts of the spirit exercised in the church, a Bible study, whether it's miracle signs and wonders, we need to go back to the Bible and say, is this from the Lord? Is this orthodox? Could this be true? Because there is a lot of deception and false teaching. It says here, the people on earth will be led to make an image to the beast. They will help to make it. Remember the golden calf. Early in the exodus from Egypt, Aaron, Moses' brother, had the Israelites bring gold and jewelry in order to use them for making an idol that they would worship, the golden calf. And so the people had a part in the making of it. It was given to Aaron and he made the idol. Could this be artificial intelligence? In one of our prophecy updates, we reported there is a robotic monk, Buddhist monk, developed by a team of monks in Beijing, China. There's another one in Japan. They can follow human instructions to make body movements, read scriptures, play Buddhist music. They chat and respond to your emotional and spiritual questions with Buddhist wisdom, and they grow in knowledge as they interact with human beings. Insofar as helping make it, one article noted, firms achieve the most significant performance improvements when humans and machines work together. Through such collaborative intelligence, humans and AI actively enhance each other's complementary strengths. And so if you were asking today, how, what is this image of the beast and how can it interact and seem alive, what well, sounds a great deal like artificial intelligence that we have a hand in making because it is borrowing from the collective knowledge of the human race uh, and our emotions and various things like that. Verse 15 says, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Greek scholar Kenneth Weiss translates give breath as animate. It won't be a sentient life as we know it, but it will be something that is alive, maybe AI. Those who refuse to worship the beast are killed. The image kills them. How? Well, it says in verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Causes, not forces. Contemporary example would be perhaps our governor's mandates to wear masks. You were caused to do it, not forced. Uh, the mandates cause you to wear one if you want to do anything, but you know nobody was forced to wear one. You could stay home and, 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 and all. We started calling it the mask of the beast. Uh, no, you don't like that? 
In the Great Tribulation, people will already be utilizing some sort of technology to conduct contactless, cashless business. Midway into the Tribulation, people will make a decision to worship the beast or be excluded from all participation in society. So the mark, whatever it will be, you know, is part of the system already. Like, let's say it's facial recognition, just for the sake of argument. The entire world will be on some kind of facial recognition system. No money, no contact, just walk into Walmart, uh, it, you walk out, they scan your face and you're done. Go to the DMV, get a pizza, go to the movies, whatever. It, it's all digital. And then all of a sudden, mid-tribulation, the, anti, uh, the Antichrist, the beast comes in and says, hey, guess what? I'm God. And all you need to do is worship me. And if you do, everything will be hunky-dory, which is a, you know, in Greek means good. Uh, but, uh, and if not, if not, guess what? You won't be able to buy a pizza or drive your car or get gas or I guess if you're in California, electricity by then, uh, or, or do anything. You won't be able to do anything. And there's no cash. You can't really trade for anything with other crazy people who are under the radar. And you know what? I'm going to get mad at some point and just kill you. And how might I do that? I just, I don't know. I could send out some slaughter bots with your f picture on it and say, when you see Gene Pensiero, just blow the smithereens out of him. Because, you know, they, and you know, they can do that now. I reported on that last week in our update how in Libya they were using slaughter bots that were unmanned drones pre-programmed to find certain people and kill them. All in verse 16 means all types and classes of people. They're described in contrasting pairs. John here specifically mentions the right hand and the forehead. I see no reason this should not be taken literally. Whether it is some sort of visible branding or one of those technologies I mentioned, it will involve the head and the hand. Verse 17, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And again, microchipping, RFID, fingerprints, facial rec, uh, palm scans, retinal scans. Those are just a sampling of technologies that would, in our estimation, fit the bill of the hand and forehead uh, mark. person will not be able to conduct any business or utilize any services unless they worship the beast. You ever had your credit card denied? Gone somewhere, especially out of town, and you, you know, and all of a sudden, you, you, that's it. What do, what do you do? Can't get to the hotel. You can't buy gas. You know, your your identity has been stolen. Uh, you know, imagine your whole life. You know, one day you wake up and you don't have any identity. Uh, you can't go anywhere. You can't buy anything. You can't do anything because you refuse to worship the beast. And you hear the humming of a drone every now and then. I mean, that's what it's going to be like. And so verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, it is true. The letters of the Hebrew alphabet are assigned a numerical value. And there is a thing called numerology, and there is a division under it called gematria. Uh, and there's a lot of things that especially rabbis have produced by using these calculations. They do music, for example. It's why we see so many attempts to determine if any current world leader's name might add up to 666. Remarkably, they all do. Have you ever noticed that? They could figure, I don't know, these guys, you know, uh, whoever they want, whether it's Ronald Reagan or Putin or whoever, they all can add up to 666 somehow. Let me ask you this. 
Will the name of the beast need to add up to 666 in order for future believers to recognize him? I think his coming back from the dead after receiving a massive head wound from the abyss with supernatural powers in a resurrection body might give him away. And so they're not going to say, hmm, does his name add up to 666? Because if it doesn't, we're not following this guy. And so, I, I, you know, we don't have to be right about this, but I think we are. Uh, and so uh, his number, uh, it's the number of man seeking to rule. And isn't that the problem from the Garden of Eden? Isn't that what the devil, he said, has God said this? No, he knows that you can rule your own life. He, he, you can be like God. And that's what men want to do. They want to be like God, whether it's a Caesar or a Nebuchadnezzar or uh, Alexander the Great. They want to rule the world and establish a kingdom of men apart from God. And God says, you're only going to get as far as the number six, and then Jesus is coming. Believers in the great tribulation will be oppressed to worship the beast and through him the dragon that empowers him. In our own church age, we can expect to be pressed. The Apostle Paul says it this way, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. You and I are going to be under pressure from the dragon to disobey God. The devil is certain that you will fail if he can turn up the heat in your life. He tried that with Job. Twice he came to the Lord and said, yeah, Job obeys you, but there's certain things that you are restricting me from doing, and if you will allow me to do them, you'll see him curse you to your face. And God said, yeah, that's not true. He will be pressed, but not crushed because he loves me. He asked for permission to sift Peter like wheat. Do you remember that? The, Satan, or, uh, Jesus looked at, Satan, uh, at Peter and he says, the devil wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And you know what? I mean, we would look at that and say, he was pretty sifted, wasn't he? Denying the Lord three times after the bluster of saying he would never deny him. And what happened? The Lord kept him. He kept Job. He kept Peter. He'll keep you. We need not fear the great tribulation. We're not going to be a part of it. But when Satan comes to us and offers his kingdom, or when he oppresses us in such a way that we want to quit, we need to be like a martyr and not love our lives unto the death and trust that the Lord is with us.